0: eschatology is the engine for ethics. What do I mean by that? Well, eschatology is the study of the end, the study of the last things, study of the future, and ethics is how we ought to live. Another way of saying that is our view of the last day will drive our everyday. The future informs the present. Our view of what lies ahead should affect what lies before our day, or maybe a better way of saying that is the way Luther said it, there's two days on his calendar, today and that day. We've been in the Olivet Discourse, the gospel according to Matthew chapter 24 and 25 for about a month now, I think this is our fifth sermon in these chapters, and today we finish it out here in Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 to 46. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you'll need one. So grab, grab a phone, grab, a, grab one from our chair there. If you have one of those in front of, our, in front of you, it's page 780 and open up to Matthew chapter 25. And Jesus, through this whole Matthew, has had several extended blocks of teaching. You know, most popularly, the Sermon on the Mount, but there's several others. And this is the last one. This is how he in, ends his instruction. And so he wants this message imprinted on our minds and our hearts, And this is a solemn and a sobering passage before us this morning. Jesus would have us listen with deep and serious attention. Eschatology is the engine for ethics. So for Matthew 25, let's consider three points together. The great separation, the sheep and the goats. First, the great separation in Matthew 25 verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people, one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. This is referring to the second coming of Jesus. And You may say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Blake, you did a lot of labor early on to show that this language of the coming of the Son of Man is not talking about the second coming, but coming about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Well, it does in chapter 24, verse 30. That is what it is referring to where Jesus tells us in verse 34 that all that will take place within a generation. But here, based upon the vocabulary and the context, we know that it's the second coming, remembering that the disciples asked two questions. This whole discourse was launched from the disciples asking two questions. Number one, when will the temple be destroyed? And we saw that basically verses 1 all the way to 35 are answering that question. When will the temple be destroyed? And then Jesus changes the subject to answer the second of the disciples' question in verse 36. The end of the age, the second coming. And so that's where we've been starting in 2436 all the way to the end of the discourse where we're at this morning in 2546. And that judgment, though, on Jerusalem was a preview of the judgment he's talking about now, a preview of the judgment to come. And so here we see very clearly the context is final judgment. And notice, who is the judge? The judge is the enthroned Son of Man. The judge is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus will be the judge of all nations. The one who came, as we saw at the beginning of this gospel, in a manger, is now enthroned with all authority and all the world will be gathered before him. The lowly baby has become the determiner of destinies. Paul, as he's preaching to a bunch of pagans, basically, in Acts 17, Mars Hill, people who had no background, no Jewish background at all. Here's the way he concludes his sermon. Acts 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's appointed a man. That man is the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. The Father has appointed his son to be the judge very clearly. And this is what the church has always confessed right since the Apostles' Creed. Speaking of Jesus, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living God. And the dead. And so who's the judge? The judge is Jesus. And Christian, this should bring you great comfort. Jesus will be our judge. The king who will judge wears a crown made of thorns that he wore as he was bearing the penalty you and I deserved. Our judge is our savior. And so for Christians, this is not a day of dread. This is a day of delights. Jesus says there's going to be a great separation between those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ, between the sheep and the goats, between the righteous and the wicked. There's going to be this great divide, a very clear demarcation. Someone has said that the world can be divided into two classes, those who divide the world into two classes and those who do not. And we need to hear this. The Lord Jesus Christ clearly divides the world into two classes. There will be a great separation on that day. Charles Spurgeon said, Not one goat will be left among the sheep, nor one sheep with the goats. There will be no middle company in that day. And listen, I realize this is very offensive. You know this. To inclusive contemporary culture. But the Jesus of the Bible, the only real Jesus taught an exclusive message. Now, sometimes Christians are called arrogant, bigoted for holding this, and a good response is to say, look, I didn't say it, and you can't blame Christians for taking Jesus seriously. You can't blame followers of Christ for following following Christ and all that he said, and he very clearly taught this. We didn't write it. We just deliver it. It's actually an act of humility. I'm not saying it on my own authority. I'm saying it on his. I believe him. And this gospel of Matthew, as we've seen, it's been filled with this clear division between those who are for Christ and those who are opposed to him right from the earliest chapters. Let's flip back with me. Go back to Matthew chapter 7. Let's look at the Sermon on the Mount. The conclusion of the most important sermon ever preached. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. This message will have not been new to his hearers here in Matthew chapter 25. 7:13 and 14 Those in Christ and those outside, sheep and goats, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many; for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of the false prophets. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous rules. There are wolves. There are true prophets, there are false prophets. Flip the page, look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. The actual conclusion to the sermon. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. Who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Flip over to Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Jesus says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Very clearly, two classes of people. Flip over to Matthew chapter 13, verse 37. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels. They'll gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then look down just one more, verse 47 of chapter 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven's like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away The bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A clear demarcation. A clear separation. The message of Jesus is an exclusive one. But when you think about it, every view is exclusive. Every religion is exclusive, and even every secular view is exclusive as well. You can't escape it. For example, the modern view, what could we call it? The modern tolerance view is really a new definition of tolerance, not the historic definition of tolerance. Another sermon for another time. But the modern tolerance view says that the only acceptable view is that all views are acceptable. It's an exclusive claim. You can't get around it. It rubs against All of history, it rubs against every religion of the world. Relativity relativizes itself. The only real heresy today is the belief in the existence of heresy. You can't escape it, though. You can't escape capital T truth. Absolute truth. You can't escape it. As Francis Schaeffer used to say, people just, you keep bumping into reality even as you try to evade it with your words. So there will be a great separation. Two, the sheep The sheep, look at verse 34, back to Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Jesus invites his people, he invites his children, he says, come. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. The people of Jesus are blessed. They're the opposite of cursed. Because we know where this story's going in just a few short chapters, it's heading to the cross where he's going to bear the curse on our behalf that we might be blessed. And so now we stand blessed. Now, because of Christ, we're blessed. We enjoy God's good favor. And strikingly, Jesus is talking about himself here, he's the judge. He's the enthroned son of man. And here he calls himself the king. Did you catch that? The king will say, come you blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Jesus is claiming that God is his father and that he will be the judge. The king says we will inherit the consummated kingdom because we're children. Children receive an inheritance. No one earns an inheritance. Children receive an inheritance. And what is our inheritance? Ultimately, our inheritance is the whole world redeemed. Eden was a pointer towards the tabernacle, the temple, Jerusalem, ultimately to the whole world redeemed, the new creation. That's what we're heirs of because we're co-heirs with Christ. Flip back a few chapters to Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. We inherit because we're children. In the new world, believers will share in his kingly authority. We will reign with Christ. We will inherit the kingdom. And notice how Jesus describes that kingdom. He says it was prepared before the foundation of the world. Isn't that incredible? Before he even created the world, the kingdom was prepared for you if you're in Christ. Zooming out, that means in many ways the reason God created the world was so that he could love you. The reason he created you was so that he could love you. Ephesians 1 4, he chose you before the foundation of the world. He created you to lavish love on you, and that was his plan before he even created. Amazing truth. Sometimes controversial shouldn't lead to controversy, it should lead to comfort. Not to polemics, but to praise. It means that what's most deeply true of you was secure before you had even heard of Jesus Christ. Amazing grace. And then Jesus gives the reason. What's the reason here in this passage? That the sheep will inherit what was prepared for them before the foundation of the world. Look back at Matthew 25, verse 35. For, words like that always ought to tip us off, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. In short, because they loved the king. They loved him practically. They didn't just talk about it. They actually did things. They cared for him. They made sure his needs were met. They were hospitable. And how did the sheep then reply? Well, they reply in humility. Look at verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did you, we see you sick or in prison and visit you? They don't even know what he's talking about. It's not because they didn't do the things that the king commended them for doing. It's that they just didn't pay any attention to it. They weren't keeping track of what they were doing. They were just being who they were. They were people of love, doing loving things. Their, Their new nature had become second nature. And they were active. They had no passive faith. Their faith led to action. Look at verse 40. And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. King says, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Now, this verse has often historically been misused to promote an idea known as the social gospel. The idea that the main thing about Christianity is just try to solve social ills. But we've got to ask here, who are the least of these, my brothers? And the first place to go is how Matthew's used the phrase. And without exception, in Matthew, this wording refers not to everybody, but actually to the disciples of Jesus. Let me just show you a couple. Jesus is saying, if you cared for my disciples, you've cared for me. Flip back to Matthew chapter 10, verse 42. Who are the least of these, my brothers, according to Matthew. not to say that the church should not care for the world by no means but that's just not what this verse is talking about Matthew ten forty two, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple truly I say to you he will by no means lose his reward flip over to Matthew chapter 12 verse 46 While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers, there's language of family language, least of these my brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who's my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Flip over to Matthew chapter 28, verse 10, last one. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The least of these my brothers refers to the disciples. So what's Jesus saying? Well, these sheep, they cared for my sheep. They cared for the sheep. Now, they cared for others too, again, but... At the end of the day, life is limited and we must prioritize. And Jesus here commands that they prioritize his people. Yes, we're called to love all people. Absolutely, yes and amen. Love our neighbors. But here it's talking about prioritizing the least of these. Paul actually gives us that same principle in the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verse 10. He says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Everyone and especially your local church. Because as you love the church, you are loving the Lord. We see that connection here in this verse. We see it all over the Bible, Proverbs nineteen seventeen: Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. There is this organic connection between the king and the people of the king. So you remember when the book of Acts... Uh, the, Saul, the, who would become the Apostle Paul, has been persecuting the church, and Jesus knocks him off his horse. You remember what he says? "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people?" It's not what he says, is it? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because there is an organic connection between the Lord and the church. He is the head. The church is His body. The sheep. The disciples of Jesus are blessed. The third, what about the goats? Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger. but the righteous into eternal life. The king, he tells those on his left to depart from him. He calls them cursed. The sheep are blessed. And the goats are the opposite of that. They're cursed. The sheep experience the favor of God. The goat will experience the wrath of God. Why? Why? Because they didn't feed him. They didn't give him drink. They didn't welcome him. And they object, hold on, when did we not do that? And Jesus says that as they did not do it for followers of Jesus, they did not do it for him. They're judged for their lack of love towards Christians, they're judged because of their lack of love towards the disciples. Because Jesus and His church go together. To mistreat Christians is to mistreat Christ. And so the goats will go into eternal punishments, but the righteous to eternal life. Eternal punishment. Jesus teaches it so crystal clearly, Hell will be a terrible, terrible place. Really indescribable. Inconceivable, eternal pain, never-ending sting, only the company of the wicked forever, only the company of the self-centered forever, the never-ceasing reminder of neglected opportunities, the never-ending reminder of the spurnings of the invitations of Jesus Christ. The spurning of his mercy. Nothing to look forward to. Darkness. It's described as hearing the sound of the gnashing of teeth. Agony. Total separation from God and all good. Eternal conscious torment. Hell will be terrible. So terrible that sometimes Christians... In the name of trying to be helpful, try to air condition hell, they try to soften the teaching. Say it won't be real. Or maybe it'll only just be a purgation, or maybe it'll only be temporary, just be annihilation. Jesus says, eternal punishment. If heaven is eternal, then hell is eternal. It's right there lumped together in verse 46. And I realize this is hard. And hell's a big problem for a lot of non Christians. They can't accept a God who would dare send anyone to eternal conscious torment. It's one of the hardest truths. But here's what we want to ask questions with our unbelieving friends. At the end of the day, it's actually good news on a number of levels. The all good, the one who only is all good, the all good God will make things right eventually. And I think deep down, when people are honest, we all have this sense of justice. All people long for justice to some degree or not. I mean, this week, you can pick something every week. This week, it was the tragedy in Nashville. Pure evil. And when something like that happens, most people long for a sense that it be made right. That's just this week. What was last week, the week before? People who've been harmed especially, people who've been hurt, don't want a God who's just going to wipe injustice away. They long for justice. And God will bring it. It's freeing as well for us that we don't have to bring it into our own hands. What keeps people from taking matters into their own hands? There's a theologian named Miroslav Volf. From Croatia, he witnessed horrific, terrible atrocities in the Balkans. He writes this, this is a little bit academic sentence, but I think it's spot on. He says, The certainty of God's judgment at the end of history, final judgment, is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence. The divine system of judgment is not the flip side of the human reign of terror, but a necessary correlate. Of human nonviolence. This judgment here is the reason that we don't have to try to take justice into our own hands. This is where we can just leave it to a just God who's truly just. We don't get wrathful, we leave it to God's wrath, Romans 12. He will take care of all injustices. He says vengeance is mine. So friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would just urge you to consider the claims of Christ before you this morning not an accident that you're here? What if you're wrong? What if he's right? The consequences could not be more weighty. The Lord Jesus Christ here, he cannot be dismissed. He cannot be ignored. You can't remain neutral toward him. He demands decision. And you can't just dismiss him. Yeah, I like Jesus. He's valuable as a teacher, right? You know, C.S. Lewis has helped us. He doesn't give us that option here. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. You hear the things that the Lord Jesus Christ is saying here? That he's the king that all nations will stand before? That the creator God is his father? He's either lying about that, or he's crazy, or he is who he is. And I just would urge you to consider his words. He's the only man who's ever walked out of a tomb. You can count on this. You can count on these words. This will come true. You will stand before him. Probably sooner than you realize. Trust him. May the judge become your savior. Judgment is coming. And it will be the great leveler. It'll be the grand equalizer. He's all that will matter on that day. Judgment will be a place where there's no distinction in class. Rank, wealth, status. All will stand before their maker. And so I would just ask you, are you ready? The most important question of your life is which side will you be on? There are two destinies for all people there is eternal punishment. For those who spurn Christ or eternal life, for those who will submit to Him as Lord, which side will you be on? You can square this away today. Don't rest until you can answer that question with confidence. There's nothing we like to talk about more than faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, talk to a friend, talk to any Christian here, they'd love to tell you about what it means to become a Christian. Now, sure seems like what this passage says is that both judgment and salvation are based on works, doesn't it? Isn't that what Jesus says? Look with me again at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world because you did these things, you fed me, you visited me, all these things, right? I look over at verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed it into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, for, because he gives the reason, I was hungry, and you gave me no food, I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. He gives the reason for the inheritance, he gives the reason for the judgment, and it's things they do, isn't it? Here's how J.C. Ryle says it, commenting on these verses, the question to be ascertained will not merely be what we said, but what we did. Not merely what we profess, but what we practice. And it's not just this passage, and it's not just Jesus. Let me just read a few more. 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one, he's talking to the local church in Corinth, each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or good or evil. Romans 2:6. God will render to each one according to his works. Galatians 6:7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to his spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. I could go on and on and on and on. So what gives? Are we saved by works after all? Was the Protestant Reformation all for naught? No. I am a capital P Protestant. I had the five solas on my groom's cake. (laughs) True story, true story. One of which is sola fide, faith alone. We are justified, declared in the right by faith and faith alone, not works and not faith plus works. So what's going on here? Well, it's vital to get two things right. First, we need to understand the distinction between evidence and basis. And we need to understand the nature of saving faith. So first, the distinction between evidence and basis. Good works are necessary for salvation. Not as a basis, but as evidence that our faith is real. We'll be judged according to, not on the basis of true faith. The New Testament says it again and again, we're judged according to works, not the basis. This is super important. This is crucial. What is the sole basis of our salvation? Solus Christus, another one of those solas. Christ and Christ alone. Christ crucified for sinners is the sole basis for our salvation. We don't contribute anything. We don't add an iota to the basis of our salvation. As Edwards put it, the only thing we contribute is the need for salvation. But there must be evidence that we've actually been born again. There must be evidence that we're actually saved. And evidence is what we're seeing here. Evidence is works. It's obedience. It's a transformed life. Listen to a few passages. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, which is really written to know, am I a Christian or not? We'll read some more verses from it a little bit later, but he says this, and by this we know that we've come to know him. How do we know that we've come to know the Lord? By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. People who know the Lord keep his commands. Here's how Jesus puts it in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. You'll bear much fruit, you'll be transformed, you'll be changed. You'll bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This is why when we bring new members in and members meetings, we'll baptize believers and bring them in and we'll speak of them having a credible profession of faith. What's a credible profession of faith? Well, it's we see fruit in their lives. There's evidence. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 sums it up about as nicely as I can. Can't improve on it. We're not saved by works, very clearly, but we are saved for works. Listen to Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Super important distinctions here. So we're judged according to works, not on a, as the basis, but as the evidence that our faith is real. Very important for your own joy and your own obedience, and your own assurance to understand that distinction. And then second, really related, it's the nature of what saving faith is. What is faith? Well, faith is not what you think. Faith is more than what you think. Faith is more than just intellectual assent. Yeah, I believe these facts. I believed those facts most of my life. I was unregenerate until 18 years old. It's more than just mental assent. True saving faith will go public in a transformed life. True faith will work. Galatians 5, 6, all that matters is faith working through love. Here's how Spurgeon put it. We are sure that no one is saved by works, but we are just as sure that no one is saved without them. We're justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Faith isn't passive. Faith is active. We see that here with these sheep, very active. Listen to the way Luther puts it. Oh, talking about faith, saving faith. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. And so it's impossible for it not to do good works. Incessantly, it does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question rises, it's already done them and is always at the doing of them. He who does not these works is a faithless man. He gropes and looks about after faith and good works and knows neither what faith is nor what good works are, though he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that a man would stake his life on it a thousand times. True faith includes repentance. They're really two sides of the same coin. Repentance is turning from sin. Faith is turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. They go together. That's why Jesus' first message. Repent and believe. And so we've got to understand what true faith is. It's not just mere passive assent. It's F-A-I-T-H. Forsaking all. I take him. True faith. And true faith will go public. And again, how did their faith go public? By loving the church. Faith goes public, manifests itself, demonstrates love for the Lord by love for one another. Again, 1 John's asking the question, how do we know if we're Christians? Let me read just a few passages. First. John. John 2 9, whoever says he's the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. But whoever loves his brother abides in the light. First John three, fourteen. We know that we've passed out of death into life. How do we know we're a Christian? We know that we pass out of death into life because we love the brothers. Brothers and sisters, the local church, that's how we know. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one who's ever seen God, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. And we've seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe The love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence before the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother or sister, He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him whoever loves God must also love his brother. True saving faith will man itself and man itself itself in good works, and namely works of love toward the disciples, toward the sheep. Eschatology is the engine for ethics. Christ is going to come back. What would the Lord Jesus Christ have you do? Trust him. Center your life upon him and love his church. Let me close with some words from the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Here we go. Eschatology. The end is coming. What should we do? Head for the bunker? Save up food and guns? Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another. Earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling the end is at hand. Have people over to your home. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. The end is at hand. Use your gifts to build up the local church. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order. Then everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever.